0: Coming up this hour, we're going to hit some headlines, and then we're joined by author Chandra Crane, author of the new book, Mixed Blessing. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. How are you today, sir? Before I get into social media, I'm I'm just going to ask you the question right off the bat.
1: I'm doing great today. Yeah, thank you for asking. It's a good day, and... uh... Nothing really special about the day, but it's been good. How about yourself? How's your day going? I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna request that John archive all of your responses to that question because I'm convinced they're the exact same. I think that no, sometimes they
1: give you specifics. I I've yet to, you know, what I haven't done. I would really throw you if I was like, Ian. It's just awful today. It's just a terrible. I because I I probably am pretty cheery, but you know, sometimes how, there's how easy, sometimes how easily I'm, do
0: you think I'm thrown? You think that would really throw me? I think it would after all of this time. I think you'd be, <laughs> what? I would I would just just. My brain would shut off and I would just I'm
1: just I'm having a tough day. I will not laugh for two hours. It's just going to be one of those days. I think that would I don't
0: you. I don't think you could not laugh for two hours if there was a thousand dollars on it. I agree with you. <laughs> it's very true.
1: <laughs> it is. Uh, it's true.
0: We are the laughing
1: pastors. So, you know, uh, That's true. I, I want
0: to stick to brand. According to one listener, we are the laughing pastors. We are yes. taking it and run with it. Brian, I'm going to let you choose which headline we go with first today.
1: Yeah, and usually I go in order that you've put them here, but I'm not going to do that today because I found one. I read this article a couple different places, and I was just blown away by it. So uh, this one is from Yahoo. Mackenzie Scott, she is Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, donated $4.2 billion in the last four months. Wow! So she has donated $4.2 billion in the last four months to 384 organizations in all 50 states, Puerto Rico and Washington DC. She said some are filling basic needs, food banks, emergency relief funds and support services for those most vulnerable. Others are addressing long-term systemic inequities that have been deepened by the crisis, debt relief, excuse me, employment training, credit and financial services, civil rights advocacy groups, legal defense funds. Uh, The move follows Scott's contribution of more than one point seven billion to diverse organizations in July, which included historically black colleges and universities. So that is five point nine billion dollars over the past uh, couple of months. And for me, that there's a couple different things that I thought when I read this first, that is unbelievable. Okay, like she got and of course, she got like 60 billion or something in her divorce with Jeff Bezos. But also what I don't have a huge appetite for is the people being like, well, she's got 60 billion. So this doesn't even mean anything. It's Mm -hmm. still four point two billion dollars. Like she's still taking whatever uh, she has and going, I'm going to make a big difference I, I, I Granted, I've never had that many billions of dollars, but what? I'm going to go with writing a check for $4.2 billion, no matter how many billions you have, is never an easy thing where you go, eh, I'll never miss that. Uh, and and even if that's the case, somebody with that kind of philanthropy, I think, deserves to be lauded and deserves to be uh, recognized. So good on her for that.
0: Do you know how much uh, Bezos has donated?
1: I think it's pretty it, – I don't. I – my – my first inclination if I remember the stories is it's it's pretty low. It's pretty low, but I I don't I don't know that for sure, do you know?
0: Uh, oh, it looks like looks like 10 million. <laughs> 10 million. Okay. So, you got a, w- a ways to go to catch his ex-wife. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness gracious. All right, so we're not going to spend uh, a lot of time on this one, but I'm assuming that you you heard the uh, Tom Cruise audio, right? You know what I'm I'm referring (laughs) to when I say Tom Cruise audio. Okay, we're just going to play a little tiny bit of it, the part that is sort of safe for radio. Take a listen.
2: That's it.
3: Am I clear? Do you understand what I want? Do you understand
1: the responsibility that you have? Because I will deal with your reason. And if you can't be reasonable, and I can't deal with your logic, you're fired.
3: That's it.
0: Okay, so what I find so interesting about that, Brian, is that uh, the internet seems relatively divided on this right now. Some mm-hmm. some people are, you know, understandably like how awful of him to, you know, to scream at his crew like that, and a bunch of other people are applauding him, saying, "I wish, I wish more celebrities would be this outspoken that are looking out for other people." And he mentions, you know, in the audio about a thou- you know thousands of people being employed, you know, by mm-hmm. the uh, execution of this movie, and there's speculation that. What he was yelling about wasn't that they weren't wearing masks, but that they were wearing masks just standing too close to each other. And I don't know. What what did you think of the audio when you first heard it? Again, I didn't really know the background too much, but I thought it was impressive because in the in
1: the rant, he says, uh, you know, I've put I'm talking to insurance agencies. I'm talking to producers like we have to follow the guidelines to get here like i don't think this is about what you believe about covid and masks and distancing i think this is him going uh the way i heard it was him going uh listen this movie and, and transformer set are not Transformer. what is it again <laughs> just drew <true> of like <laughs> mission impossible 7 thank you mission impossible 7 uh it has been stopped already so a couple months ago it got stopped due to covid concerns so he's going right. hey I don't because of some people being lazy or not finishing the rules. I don't want us all to get hurt. And I appreciated his passion around it because it did come across as genuine of like, not only do I want to finish the movie and get my tens of millions of dollars for it, but listen. I'll be okay if it doesn't end, but those of you who need to pay mortgages and college kids and whatever else, like this has to finish, so let's all do our part. I kind of appreciated it because I felt like it was really honest. Like, hey, if you really want to get paid and get this done, we've got to we gotta stick to the guidelines we all agreed to.
0: Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I also think you can convey that to people without screaming at them. I agree. That's true. He does go a little over the top. Oh, no, stick your guns, Brian. Don't don't, don't flip no. flop immediately. Like, You're right. Good, good point. I take it all back. No, no, like, no, no. I, no. I,
1: I got gotcha. you. I think I appreciate that he held them to task and even threatened to fire people if they didn't stick to it. Like he raised the level. Uh, it is a little Tom Cruisey over the top. How long it goes <laughs> of just screaming. But, a uh, but no, I appreciate it. I did appreciate him going, listen, you're going to lose your job. You, you're not going to ruin this for everybody. Uh, and we're going to finish this movie and whether he, you know, who knows what's really behind it. But I did appreciate him going. Some of you, a lot of you here need this paycheck more than I do. And if we don't follow these rules, like it's not going to get finished and you're not going to get paid. Like, basically, I yeah. you know it was like, let's get this done, basically.
0: Yeah. OK, we got to move on. So here's one that uh, I am. I'm assuming you're going to want to spend the rest of the time talking about Toledo Zoo discovers Tasmanian <laughs> devils that glow. Y'all, you got to look at these pictures. It's like, I've never seen something so adorable and terrifying and bizarre. Any, Any takeaways from this? Any sermon illustrations from this illustration? I'm not going to Tasmania. <laughs> These no, would be I,
1: terrifying. Oh, I, I,
0: I, just, I just bought my ticket. I'm, I'm doing the
1: opposite. <laughs> Could you imagine walking around at night and seeing this creepy blue glow in the <laughs> distance? Uh, no, thank you. But it's it cool. Always find a new thing. So it is pretty amazing.
0: Okay. So speaking of uh, giving money away and whatnot, Transformation Church gives away $3.5 million in house, cars, and cash to bless those in need. What's sort of the uh, 30,000 foot of this article?
1: It's just crazy. It's uh, Pastor Michael Todd of Transformation Church in Bigsby, Oklahoma, led his congregation in a three point five million dollar one day blessing spree Sunday, in which they helped scores of human service organizations, uh, ch- uh, churches, and individuals, including one needy family that received a new car and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to purchase a home. So, I mean, I'm sure we could do a whole segment on this one, but uh, again. Uh, A a church going above and beyond to put its money where its mouth is like our our church here. And I'm sure your church, we always say things like we want the the, the, uh, community around us to be blessed by us being here. And this is a church that went. This is above and beyond anything I've ever really heard of the amount that they did. And I don't know how they figured out what people need and what I don't really know the logistics, but three point five million dollars. That is amazing.
0: Yeah, I, I hope we keep seeing more stories like this. I'll briefly read this headline from Not the Bee. It's a funny website. Uh, <laughs> Disney World was digitally adding masks to photos of visitors and they look terrible. Highly recommend you go check that out. But uh, Brian, you're the baseball guy. Why don't you close us out with some brief baseball news? This was a big one. The Negro yeah. leagues are now, quote,
1: major league in the eyes of Major League Baseball. It's stats part of the official record. So they've always been held as a lesser league. Uh, for back in the 30s and 40s, the Negro Leagues. And uh, and now Major League Baseball said, nope, we're going to consider those Major League and including the records, including the statistics. Uh, and so you'll start seeing that in the stats if you're a big baseball stat person. Uh, but it's in honoring the Negro Leagues, in acknowledging that the that, that African-American players were not allowed in the Major Leagues at that time. Uh, And I think this is this is really uh, an important step by Major League Baseball. I think this is really cool. And uh, you'll see it reflected in things like the Baseball Hall of Fame and the record books and everything else that we love about baseball.
0: I I think it's a remarkable story, man. Maybe we'll commit a a whole segment to it later, because I imagine there's implications that you and I haven't even thought about. But I think, man, that's right. It's about time. I think, I think that's wonderful. Again, all those articles and more are posted up at our Facebook page uh, at Common Good Talk. i got to remember the new Facebook address, too, by the way. That's going to take me a while. Anyway, we would love for you to weigh in there and uh, give us your thoughts. You can send us a private message and do all of that at the Facebook page. Coming up next, though, we are thrilled for this interview. Chandra Crane, the author of the new book, Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your Multi-Ethnic Identity. She's coming up next for the next two segments here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're thrilled to have for two whole segments, Chandra Crane, the author of the new book, Mixed Blessing. Welcome to the show, friend.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited it's,
0: to be our here. Our pleasure. Likewise. Would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to everyone?
2: Absolutely. So I am a recent seminary graduate as well. Woohoo! Congrats. I uh, literally <laughs> thank you. I know I finished my last final and last paper uh, three days before the book launched. So it has been quite a week wow. around the household. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm a writer. I'm an avid reader. We're a house full of bibliophiles. Um, I really love hot tea. I love Converse sneakers. Um, <laughs> have a wonderful, supportive husband and two very spunky daughters. Um, and I think this is the section where I share my deepest, darkest sin, right? <laughs> yeah, this, yes, this that's, that's right. We like to <laughs> okay, start the show
0: that way. Yeah, for sure.
2: <laughs> good, good,
1: good. Well, Chandra, congratulations. I don't know, finishing seminary and finishing a book while having little kids. That's super impressive. We need to yeah, just no, talk no about that. But uh, so, again... Uh, the book that just released is called Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your Multi-Ethnic Identity. Uh, and, and part of the book, it says that, uh, you know, that, that that's your story, kind of that question of, so mm-hmm. what are you? That's your background. Mm-hmm. I would love to just start there. Uh, what was it like and what is it like being somebody with a multi-ethnic, multicultural background?
2: I think what's been most interesting for me in writing the book is learning how I've known for my whole life about the complications of being multiethnic in a monoethnic world, the way that I defy stereotypes and can make people uncomfortable, um, the nuances and the humor and the pain of code-switching. Um, mm. And I've long known all of that. It wasn't until college when I became a believer that I started to feel some of the joy and the wholeness of being in Christ. It wasn't until I read a book um, that's kind of the, the Shoulders I Stand On, Check All That Apply um, by Sandy Fraser, that I had someone tell me for the first time, your mixed ethnicity and my multicultural story, um, because I was also adopted by a Black um, stepdad. Hmm. So it was the first time that someone had ever said to me, the fact that you are white, you are Thai, you have culturally Black ties, is actually a good thing, wow. that it wouldn't have been better for me to be monoethnic. And that was life changing, right? To be told that this is actually part of God's design. What was special in the writing was kind of this third piece. So, you know, thoroughly Trinitarian <laughs> was the pain and the the blessing, but also the privilege of what it means to be mixed to serve the church. Mm-hmm. How because we're sojourners, because we are um, with our feet in in many, if not uh, in both, if not many different worlds we can help the church not be so comfortable. So yeah. that that was the most surprising thing to me to discover. And yet it wasn't, right? Because yeah. because I, I knew all along, I just hadn't applied it to my life and my story.
0: Oh, that's good. Now You actually send us some notes in preparation for this interview. And I love the way you put it. You said, we, we know what it's like to be between two worlds. And that in a lot of ways has sort of been our heartbeat for this show. How can we reach... Some some commonality, some common space to be Christians for the common good, not just people who attend our congregation, you know, or call our church home. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that living between two worlds? Because I I can say, I'm pretty confidently, I I have not experienced that myself, and I know that that's an area that I'm I'm quite ignorant in. What is what is that like? Feeling like you exist at least in two different worlds.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was excited when my awesome publicity marketing folks asked if I would have time to be on the show. And of course I looked you up and I just was so delighted to see. Um, I remember the first time I got called a, a neo-Calvinist <laughs> and, and it was an insult and I had to go look it up. Like, Oh no, my husband and I were like, Oh, we're neo-Calvinists. What does that mean? And then we were like, Oh no, we're absolutely neo calvinist Like who is this Kuiper guy? Um, but like, you know, the every square inch, the, for the common good, the, the beauty of, of Jeremiah and Daniel and seeking the peace and prosperity of Babylon so that in its flourishing, we might flourish. Mm -hmm. um, is so important to me. So I'm so delighted to, to connect with you on this show. I think in terms of what it's like to be there, one of the uniqueness, one of the unique things about the mixed experience is not just being an outlier in society, because in some way we're all an outlier, right? Even right, those with the right. most privilege, even those who are monocultural, monoethnic of the majority culture, we have ways in which we don't fit in. Mm. Um, but it's the not fitting in necessarily in one's family that I think is so formative, right? Mm. Because even people of color who are dealing with living in a majority culture world can hopefully go home and be amongst their own folk. Mm. Um, mm. But for mixed folk, you know yes, everyone is multi-ethnic at some level, right? even white folks, and I think there's beauty when white folks are able to dig more into their heritage into their German or Italian yeah. or broadly European heritage, but it doesn't affect day to day life right. in the same way that it affects people of color today. and in the home, there's not this tension of a forced choice, and so I think that that resisting. Against a forced choice and being able to say, No, I am this and I am this. And that looks different, different days. Mm. But being able to lean into that, I think that's the story of the church, right? We're wanting to be in the world, but not of it. We're wanting to be sojourners and strangers who are longing for the new heavens and the new earth. And so I think that's a gift that I and other Mm -hmm. mixed folks have to be able to say, Okay, here's an embodied, present way that it can look as we're longing toward where we're headed together.
1: That's yeah. great. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, Chandra, I'm wondering, uh, you said that, you know, reading and some other things kind of helped you go from pain to blessing. What, what was mm-hmm. it like as a kid? And how did your parents work you <laughs> through it? What was it like growing up? And what were kind of the messages you got in the schoolyard and other places? Oh,
2: my. Oh, the schoolyard. So, of course, <laughs> the do you know Kung Fu question, which I kind of wish I had learned Kung Fu because yeah, I was right. a strapper <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> and it would have been nice to be able to back up my playground responses with a uh, with a little fierce uh poses, hmm. but yeah, very much that you don't fit in uh I looked fully whatever that means Asian as a kid, so you picture this white mom, this black dad because he adopted me and married my mom when I was five. um I didn't grow up with much Asian culture, but this asian looking little kid, hmm. and somebody once asked jokingly but said. Um, how does black plus, plus white make Chinese? Which which is <laughs> funny, right? But mm-hmm. there's a pain underneath funny. it. Not least yeah. because I'm, I'm Thai. I'm not Chinese, right? This, yeah. this broad yeah. pan-Asian spectrum which equals Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that sense of all of my awkwardness and my quirks being magnified. I've always mm-hmm. been a reader. I, I, I was definitely the kid was that was bringing books out to recess. And now my oldest daughter is, and I think, oh, I love you so much, and I'm so glad, and I know what's coming, <laughs> right? Right. right? and I know how different you are, and that's a good thing, but yeah, the schoolyard is tough, and it was tough looking at my mom and my dad and not looking like either of them. People always mm. assumed that I was adopted on both sides, which is a beautiful, complicated story mm. of its own, right? Um, not being with your first family. I did have my mom. I was related to my mom, but I looked nothing like her. And also, this sense of I'm I'm not like them in in personality and in culture because mm-hmm. I'm trying to incorporate these different worlds. Right. I'm trying right. to be honest to my black family, to who I am with the white privilege I have, and this big Asian thing I feel. And so there was definitely that sense of, you know, when the, when the bullies on the playground say something that's devastating because it's true. Mm-hmm. Right, and that that mm-hmm. truth that I didn't have the message of Christ to balance with, which is yes, Chandra, you are weird, and that's beautiful. Yeah. So uh, I'm grateful that our daughters are growing up with a day that where they can say there's never a day where they didn't know the Lord, um, to have that context and that church to to be uh, telling the whole story to them.
0: Oh, gosh, and I I know that you know as pastors, Brian and I are regularly having conversations around diversity and multi-ethnic expression and it it feels like the more that i learn the less i know. I mean we were just talking a little bit earlier this week we were reading another author who was saying D- diversity isn't even ultimately the goal at a church level at a ministry level and i i think that your perspective is is so uniquely wired you have such a a gift i think to be able to speak into how how do, does the church do this right and maybe what are some of the ways that the church totally gets this wrong. That's
2: a great question. Um I have to laugh because that's the Christian walk, right? The more we learn, the more yeah. we learn how broken we are and how much beauty God yeah. is pouring into us and just how far we are from Christ. Um. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I empathize with that. And again, I think <laughs> those who are asking the question, what am I doing that I can improve on? How am I not seeing people? Are usually the ones who are doing it the best, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's this awareness of, I don't have the full story. I love that being mixed is part of no one person. So even though I have a couple of different cultures represented in myself, I love that being mixed has shown me and reminded me that no one person can fully reflect the image of God the Mm. way his people do, right? That, that there's beauty and there's goodness and there's value. And there's an intentionality in the way God didn't just, uh, bred out his people after Babel because they were being arrogant, but also because what he had said was go out, mm-hmm. form cultures, form different cultural artifacts, as Andy Crotch would say, create different expressions of who I am in your worship. Right. Um, and so I think the churches that are hungry to include the other mm-hmm. are the ones that are hmm, getting it right, right? That's mm-hmm. not, <laughs> that's, that's a bit of a, a, a weighty mantle, so we'll get this right. But mm-hmm. um, even churches who have their eyes open to those who are differently disabled. Mm. Um, You know, those who have a ministry to those who are homebound, those who have Mm. a ministry to um, those who don't have the sexual or gender majority story. Um, Those who care about immigrants. I think that once a culture, a church culture has that perspective, then they're more open to, okay, who else, who else is missing from the table? Um, our church here in the Jackson, Mississippi area is the first multi-ethnic church I've been a part of. All the churches before that were wonderful monoethnic white churches. Mm-hmm. And to look around and see a body that looks like me because nobody looks the same is so powerful. And I think that, and here's the trick, right? Because you're both pastors and and it's so important that God has called you to that work. And I think what you're doing is is powerful and important there is such a huge value to having other leaders within the church who are of different ethnicities right to kind of put your money where your mouth is to put your capital uh whether that's Hmm. financial or relational capital um to where other people are benefiting from it and able to say here is a value that we have um but the trick is right it's it's a multi-ethnic congregation but actually it's bi ethnic it's mostly black and white we have a black head pastor that is hugely important to us as a congregation our first head pastor was our current head pastor uh shout out to l who's amazing and a wonderful wonderful man um but the sense that because we're not home yet we constantly have to be searching and growing and in some ways when enough well-meaning and i include myself in this when enough Mm -hmm. well-meaning excited white people show up (laughs) <laughs> it mm. changes the demographic right <laughs> yeah. and so that requires an intentionality an intentionality to say okay who can we partner with who can we use our platform to vent to benefit i mean as you've done for me it's such an honor to be on the show and i think that speaks volumes to mm. an organization's commitment to justice to uh seeing the least of these um and a willingness to to stop and see what is the holy spirit doing and that's mm. That's something we all need to do, right? That's something I'm wow. learning about. That's something other people are showing me how to say, okay, what disruptive things does the Lord want to do? Because he mm. was a disruptor and he disrupted. Right. Um, mm. He was willing to stop for the woman who was bleeding. He was willing to stop for the father who was desperate for the life of his child. Yeah. Um, and he also went away and he prayed with his father and he came back and he preached And so the churches that I think are most, most, that are most a blessing, that's not how, that's not the phrase. The churches who are blessing others the most are the ones who are willing to see where the disruption is and run with it. Mm,
0: That's good. Mm.
1: Uh, So InterVarsity, who your book came out through, Mm -hmm. is, uh, they tweeted yesterday on your launch day. Again, congratulations. Thank Uh, you. They said, When we interact, this was from your book, Mixed Blessings, Mm -hmm. says when we interact with Jesus's teachings from our multi-ethnic perspective, we're honoring the Imago Dei in us all. Ian and I often talk about the importance of the theological concept of the Imago Dei, but could you explain Mm -hmm. both what that is and why that's so essential to this conversation?
2: Mm. Absolutely. So Imago Dei is Latin. I learned that now that I've I've done the whole seminary bit um, (laughs) for image of God, right? And I think It's such a tricky conversation for those of us who are in that broadly reformed Calvinist camp of not missing the brokenness that comes inherent with everyone, Mm -hmm. but also not replacing that truth with or not taking that truth too far to enter into this worm theology of, oh, woe is me. I'm so broken. I'm so ugly. There's no hope. Hmm. Well, there is hope in Jesus. And when we think about the common good, right, there is still that thumbprint on each of us. That when God made man and women, he looked and he said, oh, it is good and very good. And so I think when we can embrace this idea of the image of God being in every single person, then we can start to ask those questions of what does it look like to honor that Imago Dei in people? How can I honor the Imago Dei in myself? I think one of the most powerful things that I've been learning about lately from various authors, um, like uh, Daniel Hill, who wrote Wide Awake, is that when we disrespect the Imago Dei in others, we disrespect and damage it in ourselves too, hmm. right? And so that when we think about an extreme case, like Hitler created in the image of God, but did so much harm and damage to other people born, born and created in the image of God, that he essentially, he broke his to pieces. Hmm. Um, he, he hurt his own image of God so badly because he didn't respect it and, and rejoice with others. Wow. And so a lot of times when I get overwhelmed with all of the theology and the deep, weighty thoughts of all, I think it's also beautiful just to come back to Imago day and yeah. say, wow, the image of God is in me. And now mm-hmm. the spirit of mm-hmm. Christ is in me. And that's, that's a powerful, world-changing, God-honoring, common good perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember a couple of years ago I posted something, and I got the most heat for that out, out of anything I posted in a long time. And said something like, <laughs> "Because of Imago Day, racism isn't just impolite; it's not a bad habit. It's it's sin. It's blasphemy, and we need to talk about it as such." Wow! And that, like that really yeah. riled people up. I'd love for like the last minute or so <laughs> that we have left, would you just speak to the person that maybe is hearing this conversation, saying? Yeah. I mean, the book sounds interesting. She sounds nice, but I don't understand why this is a big deal or why conversations around uh, ethnicity and race matter to Christians or the church. To the to the person who, who doesn't understand why why this is so significant, would you just speak to that person for a second? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I think what's been most powerful in my own walk and in, for example, my husband's walk, who is uh, the most multicultural white guy I know. <laughs> um has a heart for racial reconciliation but is still learning and grew yeah, up right. with a lot of privilege um is to remember two things one jamar tisby who so graciously wrote my forward we met in seminary uh google it hmm. don't be afraid to get on google and look these things up
0: yeah. and mm-hmm. that flows
2: into the second which is it's okay to get it wrong yeah right. you're gonna say awkward things i'm gonna say awkward things. Yep. But when we are willing to get out there and open ourselves up to new ideas and be humble, then yeah, we're probably going to mess up. But what's on the other side of that is, is true re- reconciliation. I mean, Jesus was perfect. So he came. He never made a mistake, never sinned in how he looked at others. But he understands that brokenness. And yes. our gospel is not one of being good people. Like you said, it's not about being politically correct or being kind to others. It's about Seeing our brokenness, offering it up to the Lord, and saying, Oh, Lord Jesus, I need you to heal this in me. Yeah. And so I would just encourage someone who understandably, because of their upbringing, because of their life experience, balks at the idea of multi ethnic folks and racial reconciliation and issues of justice to trust that God is big enough that we can dig into these ideas and we're not going to fall into heresy. I think there's a lot of fear, right? Yeah, what about right. critical race theory? What about
0: apostasy?
2: No, right. oh, our God's bigger than that. And if yes. we really do believe that he will keep us, it's okay. We can dive into these things and trust that the Holy Spirit in us will keep us on the straight and narrow.
0: That's awesome. W- would you just, as, as we wrap up, let people know where can they go to find you or more information about the book? Hit us with the social and the websites and all that, all that good stuff.
2: Absolutely. So my website is chandracrane.com. So pretty easy to find me. Um, and also my Twitter and Instagrams are at chandra ChandraLcrane.com or at Nick's Blessing Book. Uh, I said .com. See, I still, I still, I'm middle-aged and I'm <laughs> I, I learning how to do this Insta snappy chatty thing with the kids are on the computer. I don't know. Yeah, Nick's Blessing Book is also on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. I love having conversations with people. That has been the most fun part of the book launch and the book is just talking with people and having my own worldview expanded.
0: I love that. That's so great. Again, our guest today has been Chandra Crane, author of the new book, Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your Multi-Ethnic Identity. Thank you so much, friend, for taking the time to be with us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And it's our pleasure.
0: And you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. All right. So uh, here's this article out of Sojourners. And I, I liked the headline. And we spent some time yesterday talking about sleep and rest. We actually end up talking about like Sabbath rhythms a lot on this show, especially, you know, in the year of a pandemic, it feels like a lot of rhythms have been thrown out of whack. And then we've established new rhythms. And there's plenty of people that are feeling like, man, I'm I'm working as many hours, if not more so than I was before. Obviously, there are plenty of people who have lost their jobs tragically. So I know that that's not a universal experience, but it feels like rest and sleep and sleep deprivation in our relationship with it uh is sort of an evergreen interesting topic, especially in such a bizarre year like this year. So I, I'm wondering, could you just read the couple of the first couple of paragraphs of this Sojourners article? I sure can. See uh the writer writes,
1: uh, what is rest and what does rest look like during a time of pandemic? Over the past year, the multiple pandemics we have faced have upended many things, not the least of which has been our language. Quote, unquote, essential has been revealed to simply uh, be another word for disposable with essential frontline workers being those whose lives society deems expendable, not irreplaceable. So you're telling you can already see she's stirring the pot here. She goes safe has been shown to be so shoddy, subjective or circumscribed a reality in this country that protesting for black lives in a pandemic is indeed safer than failing to protest at all. And rest. What is rest? Many of us are struggling, were struggling with healthy notions and practices of rest prior to COVID-19. Now, rest seems both undefined and unattainable. Biblical mm. images of rest have often been interpreted to emphasize separation, distance, and juxtaposition. For example, Jesus withdrawing from the crowds is often read as modeling rest, distinct from the activity, the hubbub, the movement, the people. There is value in this reading of rest, particularly in how it spatially mediates self-care, thus retreats. The thing about pandemics, however, lies in the pan prefix denoting all or every as safer at home policies and seemingly limitless racial violence make clear whether facing covid or white supremacy withdrawal to elsewhere is not an option. So what does rest mean when one cannot retreat spatially or politically or otherwise? And so uh, I, I assume that many who heard that are like, I don't like this article. <laughs> I why why, why would probably- you assume that? I think it is. Uh, I I suspect some people are going to push back hard at saying that that rest is part of uh, of a structure of white supremacy, and maybe maybe that's just a, a um, uh, an immediate like, what are we talking about? We're talking about rest here. Why is that getting lumped in here? So maybe as it gets fleshed out, it would be better understood. But I do think this idea of what does rest look like in the midst of a pandemic, especially. Uh, For certain people, maybe who have more freedom versus other people who, uh, you know, it may be harder to retreat, as she says, I think is an interesting topic. What does it look like? How have our lives been just kind of um, turned over? And what does it mean even uh to to rest in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of a culture with so much going on so much division how do we even do that i think it's something you and i've already talked about i think we talked about it yesterday but like you said uh, is a bit of an important and evergreen topic
0: yeah it's something that I've, I've felt compelled to to write about more frequently than usual um like i i wrote something i guess this was when was this back in november and i said alcoholics get help but workaholics get applause just because it's normal. doesn't mean it's good. Rest is warfare against a culture consumed with production and performance. You are not created for a life. You don't have time for. And a lot of the feedback was, was at least toward me, very positive. But a friend of mine weighed in. She says, I've, I've been seeing several sentiments like this floating around the internet this week. And more and more, I'm struck by the incredible privilege one must have to be able to stop and truly rest for so many Rest is desperately wanted and simply not available. I don't think a single mom working two full-time jobs would call that production or performance. I think she'd call it survival. I don't think she'd call her work an addiction. I think she'd call it fighting for her family. And COVID, add COVID to it, uh, to what little help was available is now limited or non-existent. While I love the sentiment that life should not be worked or rushed to death and that no one wishes on their deathbed that they had spent more time at the office. I also believe our society is broken in ways that unjustly favor those who can choose to work too much. I I won't read the rest of it, but I thought it was an incredibly insightful perspective where, you know, people were digitally high-fiving me. That's right. It's not all about work. It's not all about going, 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 going. Part of what I think this author is getting after is sometimes it does feel like rest is a, It's a it's a privilege in the truest sense that to be able to say, now I'm going to I'm going to turn off that conversation for a little bit or I'm going to I'm going to step outside that dialogue or that debate where for some people are saying, like, that's my entire life. Like this, my life is wrapped up in this discussion or in this disagreement. So to be able to say, like, "Mm, I'm going to go on a retreat and I'll revisit this on Monday uh, is potentially, I think, a a potential definition of privilege that doesn't get talked about enough.
1: So what do you do with? I mean, we we've talked many times that you know rest Sabbath is is not uh, you know it's a biblical command, if you will. It it is something that is not just a gift, but it is is told to follow this. Uh, So what would you say to the person who's like, my life is not oriented in any way to to rest? I'm a single mom. I have two jobs. Uh, Is this just not something that is possible, or I don't even know what I'm asking except to say. I don't see in the Bible it's saying, you know, if you can then rest, but but I also totally get what you're saying that some of us have lives that have much more uh, uh ability to do so versus others. So how would you answer that? If, if that sort of uh response somebody go, "Yeah, but the Bible still talks a lot about rest being important for all of us."
0: Yeah, well the Bible also talks a whole lot about how we care for the orphan and the widow, you know, and the Agreed. Uh, So if if we're just going to simply hold up the same standard of rest to everybody everywhere, but not also hold ourselves accountable to dismantling or at the very least dissecting the infrastructures that make it so that single mamas can't ever take a break or get a weekend away. You know I mean? I, I feel like that is, this is a, mm-hmm. a quintessential opportunity to not think in isolated silos as a sort of an individualistic, how can I specifically help you specifically, but think structurally systemically and communally like, all right, well, what if, What if as a church community, what Mm -hmm. if we actually identified the single moms working two jobs and said, man, we believe that rest is as important for you as anybody. So just because I can, you know, fly to the Hamptons twice a month or whatever it is, I, you know, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not flying to the Hamptons, obviously, but, (laughs) but, but to be able to say collectively as a church family, we're going to, we're going to actually put some, some resources behind getting you a babysitter or. Um, somebody else has a cabin that's not being used right now, and we're Mm going to pay for you to go up there. I think there's some real communal opportunities to elevate the significance of rest in a way that maybe sometimes we don't think about it. I don't know. What what do you think of that?
1: I think that's totally great. I think that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, I think that I think it's an opportunity for church and other Christians to come alongside and, and, uh, and help those who are just overwhelmed, who are, like you said, single mom, working two jobs, whatever else it might be uh, to get that rest. I think that's what the church is supposed to do. It's supposed to care for those, sure. uh, in the body and in the community, uh, who, who need that sort of help. And, and I would also hopefully, uh, say to people, I hopefully, and then they can accept that and, and be able to have that rest. Cause I, like you said, I think that this is the church being the church. I a hundred percent think you're right. And I also want to know how you're able to fly to the Hamptons. <laughs> That's also what I would like to know next. Good good one,
0: Brian. All right, coming up next, we're going there. We're going to talk critical race theory. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're talking critical race theory, digital missionaries, and we're joined by John Fuller. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to the common good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm, and I figured we need to at least go there once. I don't know uh, if we'll have enough time in just nine minutes here to to really take a deep enough dive. But mm-hmm. everyone seems to be talking about critical race theory. And I feel like I've seen this all over Facebook, all over Twitter. I thought this was a, a really compelling, interesting read from Baptist News Global. The headline reads want to understand critical race theory. Read the good Samaritan story. What is going on here, Brian?
1: Yeah, and I think people might be like, well, why do you have to do this? Well, it, you just Google right now what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention around critical race theory. And yeah, it is right. a huge deal, tearing some uh, – not tearing it apart, but it's tearing it apart uh, on some level here. Uh, people argue in lots of writings. And I think what makes this article important is that it's in Baptist News. It's at com, And so – uh, this whole idea of the critical race theory and the Southern Baptist, I think, is is certainly, I think, what people might be like, why does Ian say we have to tackle it? I think that's why, because a lot of people talking about it right now, especially in the Baptist world. So it goes like this. Critical race theory grew out of the work of legal scholars of, legal scholars of color who recognized how racism was structured in law, although now it is used across a wide variety of academic disciplines and activist work. CRT, as it's called, recognizes that racism, rather than being individual attitudes, is a system that produces and is produced by social institutions like church, education, medicine, media, and law, and symbolic messages like language and images. CRT attempts to make these systems visible in order to dismantle them and build more inclusive, equitable, and just structures. The article goes on to say, a primary method of CRT is counter-storytelling. Critical race theory tells stories that challenge dominant stories, norms and assumptions. Counter stories highlight the experiences of marginalized and vulnerable people whose narratives expose problems with dominant narratives. Counter stories are especially useful in exposing discourses that seem race neutral, but in reality rest on racist assumptions. For example. The dominant narrative of science is one of objectivity, empiricism, and merit. But listen to stories of people who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color in science, and you'll hear another story. One Pew Research Center study found that more than 60% of Black uh, STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and math workers, had experienced some sort of racial bias at work. Another report found Mm. that 77% of Black women in science feel they have to prove themselves over and over again. Mm. In that same study, Latinas reported experiencing backlash for being assertive on the job. Uh, And it goes on to keep talking. So it says, these counter stories expose the fallacies of the dominant narrative and help us see how the dominant narrative obscures experience of Diverse people. So we're going to pause there. The important uh, and important section coming up is titled Learning from Jesus. Uh, but you, you uh, know, I, I was going to ask you, do you think that's a good uh, kind of wrap up a kind of good picture of what's going on? But man, even when you put this article in here, I thought to myself, you know what, I hear so much about critical race theory, and I don't understand it. I don't understand the hubbub. Hmm. I don't understand even kind of what it is. And so I guess I would start there. Is this something you feel like you have a grasp for? Uh, because for me, I hear it thrown around all the time. And this is quite frankly, one of the better kind of uh, summarizations of it that I've heard where I'm like, okay, I think I'm grasping it a little bit more. What's kind of your uh, understanding been through all of this?
0: Yeah, I don't think I would ever say that I have a, a firm grasp of it. It's certainly something that I'm I'm really interested in and I've tried to be diligent to, to read, but that's exactly it. Like I'm still in a lot of ways, Understanding or experiencing some of these things from the outside looking in, you know, I'm I'm reading stories and data and statistics, mm-hmm. which you know is about what I know to do. Um, But I I do like that the the premise of this article is about counter storytelling, and that's that's something that I think is it that requires a lot more time, you know, than just like oh let me just Google a definition and read some stats and then feel like I, I get my brain around it. I want to I want to be really you know blunt and transparent. That like I, I think I still have a lot to learn in this area. Um, but it is, it is curious that there seems to be so much backlash and it's in the headlines right now, but it's, you know, it hasn't always been. I, I just, I really want to get to the section about Jesus. Cause I think it's yep. um, particularly helpful for us right now, especially if someone's listening and they're thinking, Oh gosh, I can't believe they're, they're going there and they're talking about <laughs> it. So let me, let me read the way that Susan puts it. Please. So, Jesus used a similar technique in his teaching. In fact, we see a good example of CRT at work in the story of the good Samaritan. The context for that story in Luke is a challenge to Jesus by a lawyer. The lawyer asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus asks him what is written in the law, and the lawyer replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells the lawyer that he has given the right answer. He has stated the law, and now all he has to do is live by it. But that's not good enough for the lawyer. He wants to justify himself, and so he asks, well, who is my neighbor? The prevailing narrative in Jesus' time was that a neighbor— was someone who was a member of the covenant community and who shared a reciprocal relationship to support and promote welfare. A Samaritan did not fit this bill. In fact, Samaritans were considered ethnically and religiously suspect. While Samaritans saw themselves as true Israelites, Jews saw them as a result of mixture of Assyrians and Israelites, especially a religious mixture. The lawyer would not have expected a Samaritan to be the protagonist of of the story, So Jesus kind of rocks his world by telling a counter story that challenges the lawyer's ethno-religious bias and asks him to think and act differently. So uh, I'll pause there because the Good Samaritan is probably one of the most mm. famous stories in Scripture. Uh, do you find that setup compelling, interesting, new or fresh? Or is that as a pastor like, yeah, yeah I, I, I kind of I knew all that?
1: uh I'll- A little bit of both. I think, uh, you know, it's not something that I haven't heard, but to see it in this context, I do find interesting because I do think uh, that that we could really understand. We tell the story of the Good Samaritan all the time in churches, little kids. We preach on it, all sorts of things. But you can't lose the sight of how shocking it would have been that the Samaritan is a certain role. The religious leader takes a certain role like Jesus completely flips it. And so to to frame it as counter story here, I think is powerful kind of, of of an example of of telling the counter story uh, as uh, and and what that does to to the people's senses so as we understand people in that time how they would have heard that I I think it's a powerful example.
0: Yeah, I like the way that she's kind of kind of dig even deeper and talk about how it's not just in this story, but often uh, Jesus is illustrating that it's the quote unquote outsider that has a a better perspective on what it means to be righteous. And then she goes on to write here, the story puts the lawyer and Jesus' listeners and modern-day readers on the spot. It disrupts our worldview of who our neighbor is. It demands that we act not like the priest and the Levite insiders, but the Samaritan outsider. So to me, I think that's a really important key to not only understanding Luke, but the Gospels. And it is convicting how easily we can kind of sanitize these stories, or especially the story of Christmas, and see them through a kind of predominant narrative, you know, like in, you know, you and my our case is a white, white male Western evangelical lens. Um, that's what we kind of bring to the table. And I think what Jesus often does, if, you know, if we'll read these stories with new perspective, new fresh lenses, I think it does. It does and still should, I think, subvert some of that.
1: Absolutely. And I, I do that. That's where it can become lost on us who have especially been around the Bible for so long in our lives. You start to lose that parable after parable after parable that Jesus tells, just flip the script and that you start to go way up. Yeah. Now I can understand why the people who are around him got so angry (laughs) and got so, because it just didn't fit the boxes that they had. I think that happens with, again, when Jesus with parable after parable, after parable.
0: Yeah. And again, per usual, there's a whole lot more to this article that we won't have time to read, but I, I do encourage you go to the Facebook page at common, good talk and read the whole thing for yourself. And we know that this one, could potentially be controversial. We would love to know what you think there in the comment section or if you'd like to send us a private message, we would love to hear from you. Coming up next from Derek Vreeland, who we have had on the show before and is a delight He wrote this article over at Miss You Alliance, online missionaries in a digital world. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're here. Derek Vreeland, who is, I, I think, just a... A brilliant pastor and author and thinker we've had him on the show before and he was he was a delight he wrote over at miss you alliance which is a a website an organization that we've appreciated a fair deal Mm -hmm. on the show the headline kind of caught my attention because it feels like it's a lot of what we've been talking about the last year online missionaries in a digital world he begins by saying i really don't like the idea of online church Mm -hmm. and i'll stop there and let you take it away brian (laughs)
1: I think. Amen to that. (laughs) He says, the thought of staying at home and watching a church service on a TV, computer, tablet, or phone goes against all of my theological convictions concerning Hmm. what church is. He says, I'm a disciple of Eugene Peterson, who consistently drew upon the incarnation of Jesus to describe the church in its local expression. Church is an embodied, enfleshed, real-time, life-on-life gathering meeting in a common space at a given time. We are the relational body of Christ, and we are only as strong as the relational bonds that hold us together. The months of online-only worship gatherings were strange for me. I explained early on during this pandemic, Derek says, that online church didn't feel right. Instead of hugs and handshakes, congregational singing and serving communion to our congregation, I sat during the online service in my recliner wearing my Kansas City Chiefs hoodie, watching people worship, listening to a sermon and chatting online. I couldn't shake the feeling that this digitally infused experience I was having was not worship as it was meant to be. Hmm. Uh, And I think a lot of us feel that way about, is this how it's meant to be? He goes on to say, digital forms of communication engagement only supplement community. They cannot replace it. I've held on to this value for a long time. I have serious concerns about the long term effects of reliance on digital forms of engagement because it's too easy to hide our true selves when we are online. It's too easy to fall into the trap of consumerism, such as Hmm. falling into a Facebook, Facebook video hole where the social media provider dispenses video after video after video. (laughs) I have suspicions about online church. I have concerns and he's going to get into his concerns. But what do you think of his setup here? Like, I think you're probably hearing this. I'm hearing this all the time about uh, the frustrations and the limitations, no matter how good we do them, uh, of online church. This is probably after nine months. Are you hearing this more, the same or a little less these days?
0: Uh, I, I think it's probably about the same. I just mm-hmm. I like that he he makes it clear the beginning here too. It's not just that he misses people, although he does, and I think that that's also included. But it's for him and for I imagine a lot of people a theological conviction. Not just that you know he's not calling the pandemic fake or that you know masks or distancing don't help. He's not he's not trying to like stir any kind of conspiracy theory pot. He's just simply saying, man, theologically my conviction is that there's something about the like embodied incarnate physical gathering of people and yet you know being a part of a church they've still made the decision not to for a time that i think encapsulates the the weird dichotomous mind and soul of a lot of pastors right now we're like man my conviction actually is that we need to be together and that right now we shouldn't be or you know what i mean like right. or something in between and we've talked about even some of the differences in how our churches have gone after it i think uh yeah, the, the word messy comes to mind. Like, yeah, it's not cut mm-hmm. and dry either way. I don't hear any pastor saying, gosh, I hope we never gather together again. Digital is it. This is everything. Exactly. Like, I don't exactly. I don't hear a single guy doing that. Or, and I also don't really I mean, I don't hear a lot of pastors. We've seen a few who said, hey, sh- we're going to show up and we're going to do no masks, no distancing at all, because everything's fine. Like, they're all sort of on a spectrum somewhere in there. And that's where I think a lot of the nuance gets lost.
1: Absolutely. I think you make an, a very important point for people out there is that I don't know any pastors who are like, man,
0: this is the best.
1: <laughs> Go. Like, yeah. Well, I hope, man, I get, I hope I get, this I never to, changes. I get to stay home on. you know, nobody is doing that. Like we all long for this. And like you said, that's the messiness of this COVID time is yeah. not just putting up with people's opinions, but trying to do what's both safe and right and church and all of this stuff. So he goes on to say, Here's his concerns. Quote, he goes on to say his concerns. An online church will make it too easy for people to watch at home and not make the short drive to a church when this is all done. An online church will further embolden the ex-evangelical and the empty the pews crowd. Uh, An online church, the longevity of online engagement for some will result in their finding a more attractive church to engage with online. An online church experience deepens the worshiper a spectator. More people will experience the potential increase of loneliness, the lurking specter of consumerism built into social media platforms, uh, and online church will become more homogeneic, less multicultural, less socioeconomically diverse. He says, I have concerns with the developing online church, but then again, I always have concerns about the church. I'm a pastor after all. (laughs) Uh, And so he says, with our concerns clearly stated, is it possible that God is creating an opportunity For us online. And this is where we got to make this turn because he he's just done a great job of laying out his concerns, many of the same concerns a lot of us have. But with every concern, there's another side of the coin of going, is there an opportunity here? Is is there something that we could be grabbing onto? Uh, And that's what he's going to do here. He goes, with our concerns clearly stated, is it possible that God is creating an opportunity for us online? Don't you? I mean, that's important for us, right? As pastors, as church people to go, hey, let's look for the silver lining here. Let's look for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, I like what he says here. He says, within the academy, we find various branches of theology systematic theology, biblical theology, spiritual theology, historical theology, practical theology, and so on. And these branches often find themselves in conflict with one another. Missiologists talk about another kind of theological practice. They talk about contextual theology. Conversations surrounding contextual theology arise particularly when describing how the gospel is communicated in a cross cultural setting. Contextual theology is how we take what we believe, which is Uh, systematic theology, based in our interpretation of scripture, which is biblical theology, and understanding of church tradition, which is historical theology, to help make sense of the Christian faith in the cultural context in which we find ourselves. The focus for contextual theology is, as one would assume, context, which he's going to later kind of talk about when the context is digital, uh, that all looks much different than it has in years past. He talks about the uh, experience of the present excludes either present experience, the social status, cultural identity, or a change within a context. We can all feel that we're in the midst of change within our present context. We're living in a time of rapid cultural change in how we view social interactions, communication and community engagement. We can thank social media for this change. I'll just end with this. He says, currently, I'm finding my systematic theology understanding. A theological understanding of the church is in conflict with what is becoming a contextual theological understanding of how we do church in the digital age. That to me is the crux of the whole thing. And I wish we had 10 more minutes because I, I think he's ahead of the curve on this one that yes, what we're able to provide in terms of services or an experience is important, but it, it, it can't, I think we would be remiss to let that in any way replace, uh, what the ecclesia, the gathering of the church is actually supposed to be.
1: Absolutely. And so he's going to end with a way forward in online engagement. He says, the pitfalls I'm concerned about will always be present, but they're not inevitable. And he goes on to say, they know of people at their church who have started watching from different states, joining in their online small groups, interacting in the comments, asking if they can become members. He said, we've opened up Uh, an online membership as a way to relationally connect with people who track with us online. He said, Mm -hmm. we certainly do not have all the answers or have mastered online engagement, but we're taking steps of faith. He said, people have been engaging with us online. The question is, do I want to step into the digital world and likewise engage with them? What a great question. He said, through a time of prayer and conversation with other church leaders, I've came to the conclusion that to shepherd them in the ways of Jesus is an opportunity I cannot ignore. The pastor people through online engagement may not be the best way to do church, but it's a concession I'm willing to make in our current cultural context. That's him mm-hmm. going. I'm not sure that this is per- uh, not even not sure. He's him saying this isn't preferable. I don't even necessarily enjoy it. But God's opening some doors here. And so we've got to do what we can to engage and connect uh, and and do these things uh, in ways that things uh, in opportunities that we didn't think were coming our way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's well said, man. Coming up next, we're going to be joined by John Fuller from Focus on the Family. It's a conversation you're not going to miss here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You know the rigmarole. You can find us all over the place, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, Rating and reviewing does help us out a whole lot. And thanks to a generous match right now, you can actually double your gift to Focus on the Family. Your gift supports struggling families by saving marriages, rescuing babies from abortion, equipping parents to raise godly children, and helping families in crisis. Your gift will go twice as far through their matching opportunity. So if you've been blessed and encouraged at all by Focus on the Family broadcast, please make a gift to 1160hope.com, keyword family. That's 1160hope.com, keyword family. And we're excited to talk with John Fuller about the ministry of Focus on the Family and how you can give families hope. John is vice president of the audio team at Focus on the Family and co-host of the daily Focus on Family broadcast. He also hosts Focus on the Family Minute and the podcast Focus on Marriage and Focus on Parenting. I don't know how he sleeps. John and his wife, Dina, have been married since 1984, and they have six children. You can hear John on Focus on the Family weekdays at 1130 a.m. on 1160. John, thanks so much for joining us on The Common Good.
3: Hey, I am glad to join you guys. Uh, I, I love your energy, and I'm so pleased to be able to talk to folks in Chicago where I grew
0: up. Sort oh, yeah, that's right. And you grew up in Elgin, which is where I went to undergrad, which is not what people want to hear right now. But uh, would, you, would you just give us a, a brief introduction into who you are and what you do? Well, let's see. After I left Chicago, I moved to
3: focus on the family. Uh, no, I, I uh, have been with Focus on the Family for 29 years in the uh, broadcast area. I've had the privilege of being in the studio for 19 of those, uh, 29 years, and I'm married. I have, we're going to call it seven kids, six kids and one daughter-in-law, so we'll call seven kids (laughs) and working from home today, looking out the window and thinking winter has arrived,
1: so it's a good (laughs) thing. Yeah, and John, as you said, you've been at Focus on the Family for 29 years. Uh, How have you seen over the years that ministry of Focus on the
3: Family change and grow, its impact grow over the years? Well, I think there's always been um, uh, kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. I can do radio, right? Um, (laughs) where (laughs) where, Where we have a lot of energy and a lot of ideas and sifting through those ideas and seeing which ones connect. I think one of the biggest changes that I've experienced is going from kind of um, seat-of-the-pants ministry um, to measured ministry. And by that, I mean, in the early days, we knew it worked because we got a lot of phone calls. We had a lot of emails. Well, in the early days, it was a lot of just mail. Um, you know, a lot of people requesting books and such or asking for resources. Um, more recently, in the past 10 years, under Jim Leaders Jim Daly's leadership, we've had Real emphasis on measuring the impact of the ministry. And so every month we do uh, kind of a review. And every year there's a a big review, if you will, of uh, talking points for the ministry in terms of what we have been able to estimate. We have a a pretty good research team. And so over the years, we've been able to say, well, we're not just leading people to Christ and talking about Jesus on the air. In the past 12 months, 305,000 people well over a quarter of a million people have said, yes, I want to know Jesus, or they've rededicated their lives to Christ Mm -hmm. as a direct result of focus on the family. They've said focus played a key pivotal role in my decision to follow Christ or rededicate my life. So being able to measure those kinds of things is um, deeply rewarding. It's always been great, and I'm fortunate to be able to get a lot of good feedback through the work I get to do with the broadcast. But it's wonderful to be able to say, wow, that number is up. And 300,000 people in a year, that's a pretty significant number for people mm-hmm. you know, coming to Christ or rededicating their lives. Yeah. Love it. No kidding.
0: So you're also, as you said, a father of six. I'm the oldest of seven, but also kind of a new dad. Mine are three and one right now. And you wrote a book called First Time Dad, the stuff you really need yeah. to know. I'd, I'd love to know. Like how have you personally been encouraged by the ministry of focus on the family and what, why is it so important for parents and probably even grandparents to, to support the work that y'all are doing?
3: I appreciate that a lot because, um, a I've been very fortunate to, to drink from a very deep well. Um, uh, again, most of my time has been either producing the broadcast or sitting in the studio with the host. So I've been able to, Interact with a lot of people over the years and um, and benefit firsthand from some of the uh, wonderful perspectives, wisdom, and insight of parenting and marriage experts, despite that, um, my kids all have issues, and they are all in counseling at some level and so uh, I think and I'm serious about that, and i'm not ashamed about that because there's no formula that produces the perfect kid and that's one of the things I've really learned is that you can, do, you can have your best parenting game um, of all time going for years, but your, your children have this thing called free will, right? Mm-hmm. And so right. my kids have all made decisions. I, I love them. They're all great. They're all doing really well for the most part. Um, and, and not all of them have serious issues, but, hey, fine tune-ups uh, because of issues that I uh, foisted upon them as a dad or, uh, or we did as, as a family. They, they've had to work through some things. So I think loosening up and letting go of the outcome is one of the biggest things I've grabbed onto over the years. Yeah. Just um, my job is not to show up and make a little you know robot that does everything I say or that follows Jesus the perfect way. My job is to, to show a real love for Christ and to model that and to be, this is the challenging thing right now, and to be like a divine father to my kids when they mess up or when they make choices that I don't agree with. You know what? I mean, as adult kids, they decide things. And I don't I don't necessarily appreciate or agree, but I have to say, but I love you anyway and always. Mm -hmm. That's that's, I think, a high calling. And we try to just drip irrigate, if you will, throughout the year, um, programming that encourages parents that speaks to specific issues, Mm -hmm. um, but does do that job of saying, hey, you can do this, mom or dad show up, love them well, you'll do okay. And John,
1: we want to make sure that people are aware of the Give, Fam- Give Families Hope campaign going on at Focus in the Family. Could you tell us about that campaign and the matching opportunity, and more so? Oh yeah, uh, the yeah. Di- the difference that that campaign is going to make for people.
3: So December is our biggest month in terms of donations, and we're a nonprofit, not for profit organization. So this is the month we really have to make it uh, make it work in terms of contributions. As we do. Um usually every year we play our best of broadcast during the month just to highlight things that are going on. And uh this year we've had some really generous donors say let's help focus on the family out. We're going to do a matching gift program and so far they've uh contributed 7.5 million dollars toward this matching gift opportunity. So right now if you can give 25 bucks, um they're going to say great, we'll match it dollar for dollar. Suddenly your gift is worth 50 and that's going to help us do things like reach out and help a marriage, reach out and equip a parent to make better choices, reach out and help a mom who's struggling, who's not sure if she wants to keep that baby she just found out she's pregnant with or not. Mm -hmm. These are things that we do day in, day out. So if you can support the ministry of Focus right now, it helps us all through 2021 Reach out, and like I said, 300,000 people made decisions for Christ. We had um, we had 725,000 parents say, you know what? Focus really played a key role in me feeling stronger as a parent. These are the kind of things that we measure. These are the kind of things that we commit to our constituents to do better about with their dollars. And so uh, if you can, donate today. Take advantage of the match, and I think Brian and Ian know how to help you do that.
0: That's right. We'll just play- case, We'll tell you in just a second too, but I, I kind of selfishly want to know how how is it being a host of so many different programs? I imagine you hear from a lot of listeners, and you probably receive notes, or emails, or texts, or whatever. What's one of the the best things of being able to host some of the programs that you do?
3: Um, okay, so first, let's get this straight. Jim is the host. He's the he's the guy the spotlight shines on. I'm I'm kind of the set guy. And so we do get feedback and we do get notes. And I, I think one of the most touching notes I ever got was from a family that said, hey, we heard that broadcast back in 2004 when Dr. Dobson interviewed you about your adoption. You adopted a boy from Russia. And because we heard that broadcast, we decided we would adopt as well. And that just still chokes me up, guys, because mm-hmm. all I did was say yes to God and and then somehow because of uh, because of my role at Focus, it got broadcast to a million people. And I don't know how many other people have said, wow, we want to do something like that. But it's not for the faint of heart. And it really is a game changer for the kid and for the family. So that one meant the world to me. And all these years later, I'm still choked up about it.
0: Wow. Well, John Fuller, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And again, uh, per mentioned earlier, there is a donation match. So you would definitely want to take advantage of that. You can simply go to 1160 hope.com keyword family. That's 1160 hope.com keyword family. John Fuller. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Ian and
3: Brian, you guys are great. Thanks again for uh, the invitation. Uh, may the God of all mercies and grace shine favorably upon you and every one of your listeners. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Same to you. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we are so glad that you're here. And uh, I haven't even mentioned it yet, Brian. I know that you've been waiting with bated breath for mm-hmm. the for the holidays today. Are you ready? I'm
1: ready. Like I couldn't be more ready, actually.
0: So this first one, I mean, it is so it's uh, Independence Day in Kazakhstan, which is important, of course. It's mm-hmm. National Day in Bahrain, just National Day, just National Day, uh, Day of Reconciliation in South Africa. But to get mm-hmm. to the fun ones. It's National Chocolate Covered Anything Day. Perfect. <laughs> and are you ready for this last one? I, uh, yes. This is a real thing, apparently. It's Barbie and Barney Backlash Day. I thought that was every day. I okay. mean,
1: your kids, your ne- your kids never did Barney. That's kind of out, isn't it? But my kids were the Barney age, and it it
0: was awful. Oh no, they've re- they've rediscovered it. Unfortunately, that they was, really? they've been singing the, oh, oh gosh, yeah, the I love you, you love me. Nonsense. Oh, it's not really nonsense. Oh, I guess there are there are worse songs they could learn. I mean, I'm just grateful that we're not playing any more Wiggles, that the day that the Wiggles became obsolete in my household was the day I celebrated. I Mike If I had to listen to Propeller Wiggles. one more time, they avoided Wiggles?
1: We, have, we avoided Wiggles perfectly. Like, I don't know how, but we did. I mean, we did the Elmo stage like everybody else and all of the others, but we avoided the Wiggles. Here's the weird one for me with kids. Maybe I've mentioned this to you before. Like when my kids were little, I remember being in swim class with them and them doing Baby Shark, but it was like just another kid song. And I don't know hmm. how it became this like cultural phenomenon.
0: It's <laughs> so like super 20 weird. Twenty
1: years later, super anyway.
0: weird. All right, so BioLogos is a, a website that I have appreciated a ton. We don't we don't do a lot from them, but I, I thought this was pretty interesting, and I wanted to spend a number of segments this week talking specifically about Advent from different perspectives. So this headline reads: Creation waits. COVID nineteen vaccines. And the hope of Advent. You want to get us into it?
1: I do. Again, logos, especially with Francis Collins, is so important right now. He says, OK, a little poke. I avert my eyes to look out the large picture window of the sixth floor clinical research unit over the rooftop of UW Madison Hospital uh, to the a mile to the east. I see the lighted windows of my research lab uh, two miles further looming on the horizon is the dome of the state capitol. Medicine, science, politics, race, the dominant forces of cataclysmic 2020 now framed together forever in my memory. I'm a participant. I'm participant number 0174 in phase three clinical trial of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine Hmm. conducted locally by the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. This is one of over 100 study sites worldwide targeting 40,000 participants. More importantly, though, I recognize that this experience is gifting me with something altogether lacking in 2020. It's gifting me with anticipatory hope. In other words, it's giving new meaning to this Advent season. Advent, as we've talked about, derives from the Latin word adventus, meaning coming or arrival. In the Christian tradition, this arrival is associated with a long extended wait with a hope punctuated by doubt, with lament for the state of this world, with the keen anticipation for a better one. Our world now waits in breathless anticipation for the rollout of several vaccines that promise within this Advent season to begin turning the tide against a global pandemic that has shuttered economies, divided nations, and as of this writing, caused 1.5, human, 1.5 million human deaths uh, across the world. The development of these vaccines is a scientific success story unparalleled in the history of medicine. So I'll pause there. Uh, I really enjoy this uh, this juxtaposition between advent and the waiting on this vaccine. That's not something I'd really put together. How about yourself?
0: Well, yeah, I I have thought about it, actually. And I it's I you know, I don't want to equate a vaccine to the arrival of the messiah. Mm-hmm. one-to-one you know Like i always want to be mindful of like hey there but there there really is something that resonates with me i guess because i mean historically even for people who you know wouldn't in any way put themselves in an orthodox camp when it comes to advent it, it me and again for millions and millions of people it means a whole lot more than this but in my very limited experience it often is oh which the lead up to christmas and we might mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. light a candle or we might mention it you know at church but like really what it's anticipating our gifts and Christmas. And those are all good things, but it feels like this year, the like deep weighty, like resonating anticipation, the, the, the pause right now for something like a vaccine, something. So, and not just a vaccine that like here in Illinois, we're really looking forward to, or here in our country, something that we really need that the whole earth is like, Oh, when, when is this going to happen? I don't know. I, I just found that bizarrely appropriate for, for this Advent season.
1: I couldn't agree more because we're all like looking forward and we're going just come just come. And, and you just now that you've heard the vaccines. Right. Aren't you just like, I just can't wait to get it or till it's like available until this is over. But like it feels like we're almost there, but you can't quite grasp it yet. And and that's I think, like you said, you don't want to equate it to the coming of the Savior. Right. But but there is something there. Uh, th- there is something uh that, that makes me think of when, when waiting for these vaccines to go, yeah, that's what it is to wait for the savior. That was what it was. Yeah. It gives you even just a little glimpse.
0: Yeah, let me read a little more. It says, which brings me back to Advent and the hope for a better world. Advent is a time of looking back, looking forward and looking in. It's a time of reflection, reconnection and preparation. We look back to lament the losses, the injustices, the suffering that have come oh so close to overwhelming us, others and the world that we share. And we look back to contemplate the wonder of Emmanuel, of the God of the universe entering this world as a baby with a mission that would shatter shallow perceptions of the kingdom of God, both then and now. We look forward to the promise of Christ's return when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We look forward to the full renewal of creation to a refined shalom. And we take hope in that sure promise. We look inward to assess the state of our own hearts, and to recalibrate our ever-faltering hope. We gain strength from a hope that is at once both realistic and courageous. And as members of Christ's body charged with carrying out his mission, we recommit ourselves to personal and corporate acts of love, justice, and healing. We take intentional steps to turn the tides of evil. I think that, to me, that that sort of back-forward-in call to me is like I just think it's a it's a beautiful way to think about the season. It's the way I wanted to end the show today cuz I thought man what what an important but difficult charge I think for all of us to kind of take on.
1: Yeah, and as we close I would say, you know, uh keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, like just as it relates to COVID, because a lot of us are tired of waiting. Uh, But then allow the waiting of COVID and allow the disruption to life to to point you to Jesus and to point you to the hope of the Advent season uh, and the waiting of Advent, waiting for our Savior. I mean, I think uh, I would never have linked these two. That's why I appreciate these types of articles. Like, okay, yeah, even something like waiting on the vaccine uh, can kind of point to us towards Jesus, I think is just a, is, a, is a wonderful sentiment, especially this time of year.
0: Yeah, let me just read how it ends, too, because you're talking about, yeah, we need to, although a lot of us are tired of waiting, we we continue to to take the steps to, to not only protect ourselves, but to love our neighbor, to love others. And this is how this is how it ends, because we do so because we are they are steps of obedience to God who has entrusted us to care for the earth and all its inhabitants. We do so because individual steps can be amplified within the community networks in which we live and love, work, and worship. We do so because we understand what it means to live in that limited space between what is and what is to be. We do so because we are committed to God's worldwide restoration project. We do so because these are not steps of delusion, but defiant acts of hope. We do so because Advent is our season. So again, Mm -hmm. that's up at our Facebook page. And at the very least, I hope that it encourages you or challenges you leave a comment or share it with a friend. And with that, our show wraps up today, but we hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.